Welcome to the Every Woman Book Club. I'm Rebecca Lewis and I'll be your host for this series, introducing you to a fresh new bookshelf packed with inspirational, thought-provoking and challenging new titles. In each podcast, I'll be unravelling the details with our authors, exploring their themes and how they relate to women in the workplace and the wider world. We'll also be giving you a chance to put your own questions to each of our authors in live Q&As streamed regularly on the Every Woman Network. So keep an eye on everywoman.com slash book club for invitations to this exclusive content. My guest today is Rita Clifton, CBE. The Financial Times have called her a brand guru. Campaign Magazine called her the doyen of branding. Throughout her career, she's been both vice chairperson and strategy director at Saatchi & Saatchi and CEO and chairperson at Interbrand. She's even rubbed shoulders with Hillary Clinton and the Queen. But she openly admits to having imposter syndrome and, like 70% of people, has a debilitating fear of being found out for not being good enough. So all these achievements I've just listed, Rita, how does that make you feel? Are you literally sitting there clenched up in a ball (laughs) grimacing right now? Well, it's funny. I mean, you definitely get the sense of, you know, that's a third person there, a third person that you're observing rather than necessarily (laughs) the sort of thing that you're really feeling. But look, the thing is, as you said, 70% of people talk about experiencing imposter syndrome, and that goes up to something like 90% in the creative industries. So if anyone listening to this does experience this imposter thing, you're in pretty good company. I mean, we're talking about people like Michelle Obama and Tom Hanks and Emma Watson and Olivia Coleman often talks about the first time she goes on a set, she often thinks she's going to get fired. Yeah, And of course, then, if, if it's so common, you start to think, firstly, this is more like a normal part of being a human being for so many people. Um, And I think secondarily, you just start to think, actually, there's something in here that you can use as a drive, you know, to help you improve and be better. And I think there are some cues and clues in here from what some of these very successful people talk about. So yes, I confess, (laughs) I do have imposter syndrome. And in a weird, weird way, I've sometimes found it can be a useful drive. But of course, you've got to make sure you manage it and keep it under control. Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting there when you listed all of these amazingly successful people who have imposter syndrome, I'm now feeling imposter feelings about being an imposter because I think I don't belong in the imposter syndrome group with all those amazing people. But your book, Love Your Imposter, you take a very different approach to what has sort of come to be the conventional advice, which is fake it till you make it. So tell us about some of the kind of core principles of your advice. Well, I think that, uh, as you say, I'm not a big fan of the advice, you know, fake it till you make it. And the reason for that is that I think it encourages people to think about themselves almost as this sort of third party construct. And um, there was a TV series on a while ago called Faking It. And what it was is a whole series of people who were doing jobs, you know, I don't know, someone was a classic, uh, a classical cellist, who over a month was coached and schooled by some experts on trying to become a club DJ. And what was really interesting is at the end of those four weeks, several of them managed to convince a panel of expert judges that they were not the faker. 
But of course, what also happened was that they broke down, they cried along the way, they said they couldn't do it, etc. And of course, in the end, you can fake stuff for a four-week TV program, but you can't fake stuff day in and day out in your working life and your personal life, because otherwise it makes you feel, you know, sometimes miserable and sometimes even ill. And that's not a good thing. So, and I confess, I, you know, I remember a time when I first became CEO. And of course, I thought I need to behave like a CEO does, you know, I need to, you know, behave like sort of ass kicking, you know, uh, chewing concrete box for breakfast type of CEO. (laughs) And, you know, sort of, you know, uh, toughing up to my to my uh, uh, corporate owners and things like that. And of course, that didn't make me happy at all. And it denied you know, the way I really felt about how you should lead people and encourage people and nurture them and develop them and things of that kind. So, so I recognized some of this you know, faking it in myself. Um, but what I also recognized was that I did have this real drive. That drive actually made me you know, stretch myself, improve myself, practice harder, try harder and everything else. And that also really reflects some of the experiences that some of these, you know, actors and celebrities and people in high profile roles who talk about this stuff that's what they also think mm. sometimes imposter syndrome it's not for you know losers it's actually for people who are really striving to do more and to try more and that's why i'm saying try to embrace it look at it in a positive way because actually that can reframe your experience and also it can be more helpful and useful to you Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I really love about the book is just how open you are about your your own flaws, the mistakes you've made, or even the times that you've failed. And that makes it quite unique, actually, on on the business shelf. Um, We're normally hearing all these stories about amazing success. And I wonder how much of that was a conscious decision to sort of be that role model that does admit to the flaws and how much of it is actually your imposter because we don't really hear much about all your many accomplishments in the book and and when you do sort of rattle off a few lists about things that you've done there's this sense almost that you're just sort of getting you know getting over it really quickly just so you can go back to talking about all the things you've done wrong um are you more comfortable sharing your weaknesses than you are your successes I guess the reason why I wrote the book is because I wanted to be very honest about some of these things that, you know, we're talking about as in the imposter stuff and worries and insecurities about whether you can do stuff and things like that. And that's a, you know, quite a strong internal voice. And it has been for me for a lot of, lot of my career. And because so many people do mention that they do experience this, I thought I need to write a book that's as honest as I can bear to be about this sort of stuff. And it's a little bit like when you give people feedback, or when you receive feedback on your business performance or how you're doing at work and things like that, as we all know, you can have 95% of that feedback, which is positive, and 5% that is about areas to develop. You know, that's the sort of euphemism, isn't it, actually, that we tend to use in those conversations. And do you know, we all tend to hang on to the 5% of stuff that wasn't absolutely brilliant, to to almost sort of to beat 
beat ourselves up a bit. So I sort of unashamedly am sharing some of those you know, experiences and moments where I didn't think things were going to go okay. And you know, it's okay to make mistakes because you learn from them. And as you might have seen, you know, one chapter is about the strangely positive power of mortification, you know, when actually things have gone wrong, but you think, you know, I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm going to make sure I do this. But I do hope that also in the book, there's a good balance of stuff where I've gone, do you know, I couldn't do that, all that stuff went wrong. And so here is how maybe to look at it again. This is some of the tips and techniques and tools and things like that that I picked up along the way where I'm sharing that with people. So no, I didn't want to write a book that was blowing my own trumpet. Um, what I wanted to write was a very honest book about some of the stuff that you go through in order to, I hope, end up running things. Because what I do know is so many more people are capable of developing themselves and stretching themselves and you know, moving forward in their careers and ending up running things. A lot more people could have the confidence to do that than actually are currently putting themselves in that situation. You can use these tools and techniques to give you the confidence to really think about, you know, you can do this. You can do this, flaws and all. And, you know, please do go for it if you possibly can. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I think one of the big drivers of imposter syndrome, especially when you're looking up at successful female role models, is sometimes there's this feeling that there's there's two camps. There's these really senior women, these CEOs, directors, whatever, and then there's everyone else. And there's this barrier between these two camps and it's it can be hard to push through that and you do deconstruct that a little bit in in your book you talk about your career as a series of highways byways and a couple of cul-de-sacs um and i love the quiz at the end of the book where where we ask are you ready for leadership do you have a pulse yes or no i love that because if you're saying if the answer is yes then you're ready to just have a go but what what would your advice be for someone who just just doesn't see themselves there, just doesn't feel like they belong in that world, what, what can they do to sort of um, elevate themselves, I guess? In the book, I also talk a little bit about using some elements of brand thinking to make sure that you are you know, getting clear about yourself and what you can do and your strengths, etc. And, and, you know, I've obviously worked around, you know, the branding industry and, you know, brand strategy for most of my career. And what I'm not talking about, by the way, with personal branding in inverted commas is the sort of Kardashianization uh, <laughs> of that particular topic. So what I'm saying is, at number one, absolutely, it, it's about clarity. A bit like if you were a commercial organization, you need to be clear about you know, what makes you special and different, um, and also you know, what some of your objectives are. And similarly, I think for you know, we ourselves, getting clear about who you are, what your strengths are, what your goals are, is a fundamentally important place to start. And to be able to look at that and go, actually, I recognize that. And actually, I might be able to use that in a positive, in a positive way. So that's what I'd say is a fundamentally important thing. If you don't understand yourself, it makes other things a bit more difficult. But you also need to understand your goals. You know, what is it that's going to satisfy you? Because, you know, I've had a very strong impulse to try and make things better in the world. I know it sounds very corny. And so I wanted to take that into my more normal working life. And so therefore, understanding bits of yourself, and that's also good so that you don't unconsciously visit bits of yourself that aren't helpful 
to people who work with you. So understand yourself, your goals. And then after that clarity, you can use coherence, that characteristic of coherence. So how does that clarity show up in everything I do? What about my skills? Am I learning the right stuff? So example, the power of finance. As you know, I mm. dedicate a chapter of the book to learning the language of finance because the language of the boardroom is finance. And if you don't understand that language, you won't get there or you won't be as influential as you want to be when you get there. And you can learn it. You know, you can learn it almost like a sort of, you know, an academic topic uh, if you can just get some basics. So you need to learn, obviously, skills, whether financial skills, certainly communication and presentation skills, because that's what's going to get you the sustainable influence. And honestly, I believe anyone can learn to be a decent presenter, a good communicator. And it's about doing practice, saying yes to every invitation that you've got, even if you're petrified of doing it. You know, there are tools and techniques uh, that I think you can really use. And on coherence, you know, if you want to get on, it's really good to have partners or friends in life who actually want you to get on, you know, only have relationships with people who make you feel good about yourself or want you to get on. There are a number of things you can do to make sure that you know, your behavior, your skills, your communication, your knowledge is compatible with what you want to be. And then you, of course, need to keep on renewing yourself. That's the leadership part. Keep on renewing you know, your skills, your curiosity. I mean, I'm very nosy. I'm unashamedly nosy <laughs> about people and the world and things like that. And I find that's a quite an important source of energy too. You mentioned nosiness there. And you do say in the book, you can honestly get interested in just about anything. And this was going back to when you were doing some marketing branding for a toilet cleaner. And I, I love that because you're so right. If we can find some curiosity about our roles. It, it does make work so much more fulfilling. But I, I wonder what advice you'd have for somebody who's who's just bored. You know, they're, they're really struggling to find something interesting about their job. What would you say to them? Well, I think this is very interesting. And as you say, I mean, when I first started my career, I did start it in advertising. And again, in part, because I was nosy about people and what, you know, motivated them and things like that. And I thought, oh, advertising, so glamorous. And my first account was Harpic and Steridant, you know, new cleaner and venture cleaner. I was thinking this wasn't quite the idea. But, but what I did find really interesting was actually people's psychology around having a clean loo was fascinating. You know, when people come to visit, they wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, they gave off the right vibes. And you know, there's all sorts of stuff about, you know, living with dirt. I mean, it was just extraordinary, the psychology. And of course, you know, wearing dentures, that sometimes gives people the feeling that, you know, maybe they're just on a slippery slope you know, down to uh, down to mortality. I mean, that was really interesting. But in my view, it's about find the cause in what you do. And sometimes it might look not not look a very promising business that you're involved with. But I can guarantee that behind even a, you know a heavy industrial business or something, there is a role that the company is playing in the world, or that you're playing within the company that really can fire you up. But what I also say is that you know. You need to find the cause in what you do in every business. And increasingly, we are seeing purpose-led businesses outperforming others. And that doesn't mean to say you need to you know, work for a high and mighty type of company that is, you know, sort of you know, bringing, bringing technology to the world or whatever. You can find some really interesting things, I guarantee, that your company uh, is doing. And the other cause of what you do might well be get to the top of running that damn company and do things in the way that you think 
is right. When I became CEO, I didn't love the job. I have to say it's very relentless, but I could create the kind of culture that I really believed in. 50-50 men and women on the executive team, you know, developing people with personal bursary programs. You know, we did yoga programs. We, we did a lot of things that really excited me and you know, made me feel you can make the changes that you want. And it's about giving yourself the opportunity and the confidence to be able to think you can do it and what's more do it itself. So that's finding your cause, but you also talk about finding your thing, which is an extracurricular activity that can give your personal brand the edge. And for you, it was um, your passion about environmental matters and a bit of a crush on David Attenborough by the sounds of it. Um, And at at one point in your career, you were able to firmly bring all of that into your professional life. I love the concept, but I have to admit, I was up some of the night trying to figure out what my thing is. And I think the problem is that I'm interested in too many things and I bounce around all over the place. Do you think it's important to really focus on finding your one thing for your personal brand? No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's crucial that you find the one thing. And as you say, you know, you're many things. It might be that you've got lots of opportunities and then it's you know, the opportunity within those many things that you enjoy doing because there's sometimes things come up in random ways don't they you know sometimes just when you're incredibly busy your dream project comes up or your dream client comes up and you know you just think oh my goodness I can't do another thing I mean the environment and you know green and sustainability was a thing for me from the age of seven and yes when you say I had a bit of a crush on David I mean it's not a bit of a crush it is a true full-on lifelong crush I mean my husband knows about it and I've told <laughs> David Attenborough in front of about 200 people that, you know, that, that I have. Um, and, and that really sparked my passion and interest. And even though, you know, I, I didn't go into um, that full time, I've always had a foot in the environment uh, camp. And what's fantastic now is, of course, these two things, so sustainability and the environment um, and also business and organizations more broadly. I mean, these things are, you know, coming together, they're becoming more integral. You know, the sustainability agenda is, you know, becoming front and centre in how many organisations are looking at their priorities and how they innovate, etc. So that's been great for me. And also that thing gave me the opportunity to sit on boards and to develop experience you know, at an advisory in the senior and board level that I was then able to bring into my you know, working my working day life, if you like. Sometimes having your thing is going to be the day job. It might be your entrepreneurial spirit. It might be the business that you've set up. Mm. That's your thing. And you can sometimes make you know, a sustainable business out of something that is your thing. And that might be because you picked up some business skills from a day job that you might not have loved all the time. So what I'd say is, you know, sometimes self-help books, they say, follow your bliss, you know, only do the things that you love and you want to do a job. And I think that's true. But I also think there are certain roles and jobs that you do that might actually be a conveyor belt to somewhere that is going to be your heart's desire or that actually you can get a lot of reward out of what you can do. So, you know, end up running a company and you can make the culture that you want happen and that will make a difference in the world. So, Sometimes you need to look for you know, the joy and the satisfaction in some different types of places. Thinking about that role where you were running the company, you, you mentioned it earlier that you didn't always love it, which 
is a little bit of an understatement because in the book you actually say, I fantasized about resigning every day for six months. So, so I wanted to ask you, what kept you there? And I, I, I'm interested to know, how do you know when it's time to move on and when you really do just have to sort of knuckle down and stick it out? Because I think sometimes those things aren't always obvious until you have the hindsight, which isn't helpful when you're in that situation, obviously. So how did you figure out that this was something you just had to sort of grit down and, and get on with it? I mean, it was an incredibly complicated situation. When I first became CEO, I was putting two companies together and they didn't want to be together. Um, and uh, there was a bit of a PR crisis that I had no part in creating, but I, you know, had, I ended up sort of having to, having to deal with it. So it was incredibly difficult. It's very complicated management setup as well. And, you know, I just thought, oh my, you know, this is just about too much. I was working all the hours that, uh, you know, that, that exist and you know, also trying to see my children and things like that. It was a very, very relentless period. And yet, and yet I was able to create you know, this culture and develop the culture and bring people together. I could see what could be achieved, even though it was incredibly difficult to do it. And I just thought, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up now. It would look terrible you know, to walk out you know, after just a few months and give up. That wouldn't look good. So I have to say that part of the drive was, you know, I don't want to be seen to be failing. You know, I really want to make sure that I've given it, you know, a lot of effort because I can see what could be done. And I did have a sense of cause in doing that that got me through those really, really difficult periods. Now, you know, uh, if you were to then go to a different part of my life where I thought I cannot do this anymore, I listened to myself when I was interviewing people coming into the job. I listened to myself and I thought, you are, you sound like a fake. You know, I was having to try and pretend that, you know, this was a great company. This was a different company, by the way. This is a great company to come and join and to work for. And I listened to myself and thought, I don't, you know, you sound not like yourself. And my heart had gone out of the business. And that's when I knew it was time to go. I couldn't find the cause anymore. It didn't give me energy anymore. And I think when you've lost energy and also actually when you start to feel a little bit cynical, and I just noticed things in myself that I didn't like. I didn't feel good about myself being there and I didn't feel good about the impact so that was when I knew it was time for me to go and do something else so I test your energy test your energy and motivation and if you can't feel it or can't see it emerging anymore that's just that's the time to go good advice and uh, on the topic of role models um, I interview a lot of women on the every woman network and my heart always sinks a little bit when they start talking about their morning routines. You know, by the time I get out of bed, they've been up for six hours, they've been to the gym, they've baked a cake, they've created a color-coded to-do list for the day, which is not something I can relate to. But you smashed this apart, which was 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 really lovely to read, this idea that you have to be out of bed at 4 a.m. to be successful. But I do wonder, do you have any particular routines that are essential for you personally to be successful? Any habits that you've consciously developed? 
Uh, yes and yes. I think that, you know, I, I happen not to be a very early morning person. I've had to force myself over the years. And when you have children and also when you're doing relentless jobs, you have to force yourself to get up. But, you know, when people do say they've been up at five, I think fantastic for you. But I'm probably going to be awake at, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, you know, with a lot of energy as well at different sort of parts parts of the day in terms of my you know routine and tools and techniques and things like that yes I do have a few rituals I mean say for example when I'm about to make a speech or something you know I do a couple of things I do do yoga type breathing and I learned that from both courses and also someone who does uh, voice coaching because I find that really calms me I also make judicious use of rescue remedy, and I have done for a very long, a very long time. I, you know, I just find it, I find it calms me. Uh, you know, it, it's good for the voice. You know, I do that before I make speeches or big presentations, or otherwise. Sometimes when I go on flights, because I don't love flying, even though I've had to do quite a lot of it. Um, you know, during the course of some of my working life, I don't really like it, and so I think it's good to have rituals. Um, because actually that gets you in the frame of mind. And if you do self-development or personal development courses and things like that, using NLP-type techniques, neuro-linguistic programming-type techniques, one thing I find really useful is running tapes in your head about how you want things to be. I'm you know, told that a lot of athletes are taught to do this as well. You want to visualize yourself, whether it's speaking, you know, how you're standing, how you're holding your head, your posture, your voice. It's good to run those videotapes before you go and do the speech so that you can think yourself into that position. And if you're really worried about something, then again, you need to do some positive visualization. If you're trying to forget something, by the way, you can do reverse uh, visualization. And you know, Paul McKenna, in some of his work, talks about this stuff too. So there are a lot of tools and techniques. I have found them useful over time. And I do try and lay them out as a bit of a sort of small gas board in the book, so that people can pick and mix the ones that they that, that, that might work for them. You mentioned your your children just then. And I, I love the section in the book. It's fabulous where you list all the worries that just go hand in hand with motherhood. I absolutely related to every single word. Um, and you also say that being a mother can also help your career, which isn't a story or a side of motherhood that we often hear, um, which is interesting. How has being a mother helped you in your career? Well, I think a, a number of things. I mean, number one, you know, there, there's nothing quite like having sort of you know, a, a crying baby or whatever to you know give you patience. You know, give you patience with people. Um, and you know, dealing with a with a stroppy two or three year old, you know, that can help you, you know, really deal with some very difficult people in the workplace too. <laughs> and also, I think you know, understanding how to develop uh, how to develop small people, and you know, seeing how they learn and things like that. Again, I think these are quite useful uh, tools and techniques that can you know be used uh, more broadly. I think at the end of the day, you know, there is nothing quite like having a sort of human life that, you know, you've you've um, been brought into the world and that you've nurtured and so on that really helps you understand the power of nurturing you know, other people um, and how to how to develop other people too. And, you know, frankly, sometimes negotiating with your small children. <laughs> on, 
actually not just with small children, but with your teenagers as well. You know, once you've negotiated with that, then sometimes it makes it easier to negotiate more broadly. So there's one particular relationship that you have that I wanted to bring up. Um, Hillary Clinton has reviewed, glowingly reviewed your book. And you very briefly touch on a time when you met her. Um, I want more details. Tell us everything. I'm not sure I can tell you everything um, <laughs> for lots of reasons. But look, I, I had to make a, a speech, um, and uh, Hillary Clinton was was you know the main speaker and things like that. So um, I made a speech, and uh, I found out you know as much as I could about her and so on. And you know, during the course of this speech, she was really great. I mean, she smiled and laughed you know, in all the right places and things like that. And uh, you know, it, it did seem to go well. Anyway, the day after her office contact me and said that she'd really like a copy of the speech because she really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I was thinking, gosh, I hope that's not because she wants to show it to her lawyers. Um, <laughs> there we are. That's the imposter uh, thing talking there. Anyway, so when I read about her, I also read that she had experienced this imposter thing and that she wrote a very moving letter to her young self, you know, in Teen Vogue, where she talked about going to Wellesley College and meeting women and she thought they're going to be much smarter than her, you know, this kind of stuff. And and so therefore, um, when I had finished the book, I you know, we wrote to her office and said, gather that uh, that this is something that um, Secretary Clinton had also suffered from. Anyway, to cut a long story short, a few months later, I was thrilled to say that an endorsement came back and I was beside myself with joy. <laughs> I was completely thrilled by that, as you can imagine. I bet. She's, she's an amazing role model. Amazing. And finally, you, you do talk about that um, concept in the book and the importance of a whole portfolio of role models, including some unconventional ones. How comfortably do you see yourself as a role model and all of the responsibility that goes with that? Well, I think it is important um, to try and be as good a role model as you can be. And the reason being is that, you know, I picked up a lot of things over the years from a whole series of people, both men uh, and women. And in some ways, I've sort of been a bit of a magpie for some of the things I think, actually, that was inc- that was a fantastic example of how to deal with that situation. Or this person is running an organization and they've got all of these challenges and things like that. It's been very affecting. I mean, doing the book and getting some feedback on the book um, from people who uh, either I've worked with in the past or otherwise have read the book and and related uh, to it. And one particular example was, frankly, when I knew I was running quite a big team and I was, I had, uh, the children were small and from time to time, I just—I mean, I just thought I look rubbish. I—I I look rubbish. I feel rubbish. I'm really tired. You know, when you've got small children running around, and you're working full time. It's all you can do. Your goal is often to stay awake, frankly. You know, let alone <laughs> let alone do anything else. And yet, um, a woman in my team um, later said to me, "Do you know the fact that you did that? You know, you you led the department and you had small children. It never occurred to me that I couldn't do the same thing." You know, I think to be a role model, to do the stuff that we would like others to do. I mean, people often say to me, we need more women to be running things. We need more women to be stepping up. We need a better chemical balance. I certainly feel that. And so therefore, what what I can say to people is, look, if you are capable and you have got some of the skills or you can develop some of the skills, you are the woman. 
you know, believe in yourself and go for it and say to that imposter, thank you. you know, use, use your imposter, use some of the feelings that, oh my goodness, can I do this as drives. And frankly, when you get to the top, you can do it and you can do things differently and set another role model or set an example to others. And that's how we're going to get the whole chain working, I hope and I trust. Amen to that. I think that's a perfect place to end our conversation. Thank you, Rita. Best of luck with the book. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Thank you.